Hello everyone, this is Stacey Boucher. Together with Ying Kuei, we welcome you to the third and final episode of Common Air as part of Costco's program Common Ground Song Value, which started in October 2020. You can visit Costco SoundCloud to listen to the first two episodes and learn more about the program's focus on the power of songs and the social and political landscapes we move through as we consider values for a common space future. We started with sharing songs that are more clearly explicit in their social and political functions, like in collective protest and healing, to their relationships to music, heritage, and a commons infrastructure for their production and distribution. And now we're here, diving into poetry's relationship to music and taking a closer look at lyrics or lyricism rhythm and attunement. Like the last episode, we're recording from home, and we've sought to assemble all of our material as a collage, or meditation, really, on the poetics of songs and writing. There's really so much that we can get into about this, but to ground us in the present and with the incredible artists we've been working with in the Song Value program, as well as how we've been trying to organize it, we want to explore some of our questions and interests with them here to share with you. Uh, So we've got a full episode with so many voices, and we hope you enjoy uh, and become inspired like we have in these creative processes. So thanks for joining us. We started the episode off with a track by Aleph Wow called Capricorn Moon. Aleph Wow is a musical project by Urok Sharan, one of the letter writers in our collaboration with Deer in our program, which is an artist initiative led by Martha Jager and Sophie de Seriera. And Deer is a postal series connecting artists, writers, and poets to readers in times of isolation. Regarding Rogue's letter, which was sent by post in November 2020, Deer writes, Through layered forms of translation, transcription, and score, Uruk Sharan's letter unfolds a personal space between sound and silence. What does it mean to speak? Like a prelude, the letter presents us with something which is yet to be voiced. For this episode, I asked Martha and Sophie to share more about the formation of DEER, their experience collaborating in the context of the Sung Value program, and in general, what DEER is up to next. And in true fashion to the collage of this episode and connecting remotely wherever we are, riding bikes, walking the dog, sitting in a chair, um, they've shared more about their work through voice memos, so let's hear from them. Hey, Stacy. Uh, what a wonderful idea to have this conversation through voice notes. Uh, my apologies for the empty messages I just sent. I I hardly ever use voice notes, so I just um, I wanted to make sure that I knew how it worked, um, and I guess I know now. Yeah, it's it's really lovely to do this over voice notes because I think it 
touches upon things that we that were at the basis of um, finding dare, actually, which is um, intimacy, slowness. Yeah, just taking a step back and making an effort to connect with others. Dare was uh, founded in March 2020 uh, when. Sophie and I were both working as programmers at Perdue, a platform for poetry and an experiment in Amsterdam. And as the pandemic hit the Netherlands, we were forced to halt our current programming, which then led us uh, to think about other ways of producing, you know, publishing, collaborating, but more than anything, um, I think it came from this urge of wanting to transform this trying time that at that moment we were only just embarking on. But it was, it opened up um, a very special space. And I think this is what led us to think about how can we take this further? And this is how we came to the idea of, well, dear, as it exists uh, and moves right now, um, actually like a, like a traveling post office that distributes letters from um, artists, writers, poets, musicians to an um, growing audience of readers. So as we started the first series, um, we really wanted to respond to the current time. So everything was done quite rapidly. There weren't months of um, working on a curatorial framework. It was quite immediate, I would say. And I think this is also still one of the most um, important facets of their actually. So rather than um, coming up with a theme or a focus, I think we kind of instantly knew that we wanted to approach it as a carte blanche and ask authors to write the letter that they felt like writing at that current time and to not approach it as a, a literary exercise, but rather something personal uh, to then be made public. So the first four writers that we invited to um, compile a letter, um, and like I said, at that time, there wasn't really much of a, of a curatorial framework. We were responding to the moment and thinking of people that we would like to receive a letter from. So the first four people that we invited were writer Yu Lemmy, artist Dance Murray Wassing, poet Ariana Ryans and artist, curator and writer Hamja Asan. And we started in May and posted um, one letter each month. And I think it was through the collaboration with all individual authors, um, but also in the conversations that we started having with readers, um, um, befriended artists and curators, we kind of 
came to the idea of continuing the series, but in a collaborative way. Because the first series, it was um, very generously sponsored by Purdue, but there wasn't much of a, of a collaboration. And we thought it would be really interesting to tie each series to the programming or the history or the research of a cultural institution and in that way provide them with a way of being visible in this trying time, but also to ignite um, another way of working together, I think. And that way of working together or that mode of working together, I think, can best be defined by um, calling it very personal, fluid, non-hierarchical, and open to change or even encouraging change, I think. Because when we started thinking about any future collaborations, uh, we started drawing up invitations to cultural institutions that we would like to work together with, we found ourselves setting up rules um, regarding forms that would have to be reproduced or a certain visual identity that we would like to keep on. Uh, and I think this is when we kind of realized that will be what would be most interesting is to take the format and to understand it anew and uh, re-event it with each collaboration. Hi, uh, I hope you can hear me. I'm standing outside of my laundry mat, um, waiting, waiting for laundry. Um, yeah, what really struck me was kind of how to think about the um, in relation to the song, song value program, like as itself something that maybe relates also to the lyrical or rhythm. And then I started thinking like, okay, what is it about Dear that also has this in it? Because we haven't actually had the chance to really think about um, Dear as a project um, relating to the program, more as like who, who do we invite that fits um, yeah, that fits the theme and um, the feeling of it. So then I was thinking, oh, actually, mm, it's so much about cycles. Like lyric, for me, like the lyric. When I think of rhythm, or when I think of the lyrical, I think of like circular, yeah, like circular motions or things coming back, and then also thinking about the time that deer arose um, was yeah it was a difficult time because everything I guess everything kind of came to a standstill and so there was a lot of repetition and like um, not being able to do certain things or like spontaneity being kind of curbed and um, what was really nice was think about that as a kind of how cycles are circular but they also always bring something new so I was just thinking like oh somehow that fits um, there as a project also because you know we bring out a letter 
for four, you know, four times, four seasons, basically four weeks, and um, and every time there's like a new input, even though you know the form is the same. Okay, so now I'm on the bike, and it's a different energy. Um, but just to follow up on cycles. I think like what's interesting about cycles and it also came up um, during uh, the Casco assembly there was a lot of kind of what what does a cycle mean and what does it mean when we stay with something for a longer time and I've just been seeing this everywhere like even an example of just more of a personal thing that came out of there was we didn't know it was going to continue and then when it did also the relationship between me and Martha changed and we got to know each other a lot better and this was really beautiful to see unfold and it really kind of says something about sticking with something but not becoming stagnant and I think in yeah what you maybe would call like the art world or at least places that hold exhibitions and have this very fast-paced um, situation going on and also the exhibition itself being something that is ready or like finished and that's what I really appreciated about Casco it's like the, they were so open to deer because it was like an evolving thing and it would be you know it's not like oh we're presenting these artworks and that's that and it's so nice to like break with this um, presentation style and to see how something kind of yeah takes shape takes shape over the weeks um yeah so cycles everywhere so i also decided to take my voice notes on the go and i'm now uh, walking my dog fred by the waterfront in amsterdam and it's reasonably quiet uh, because it's past curfew uh, but it's a little bit windy so I hope you can hear me alright I just thought that I would uh, reflect upon what Sophie said um, about not becoming stagnant as I think this is really important for deer uh, and I think it's about joy about enjoyment really because I feel that um, becoming stagnant is a byproduct of the way that we work within the art world or the way that we think that we should be working within the art world uh, which is which hovers towards the monumental and the intellectual uh, but in a way that there is very little space for joy because i feel that joy is often seen as um, the product of entertainment and entertainment can't be art or something like that um, either way that's really something that's not interesting for me uh, and Sophie as I think for us both the most interesting thing up there is the conversations that we have with the people that we work together with um, and the conversations that we can initiate uh, albeit silent conversations by the letters that we distribute and what I find really special um, about the collaboration between Deer uh, and Casco's song Value 
uh, with the letters written by Jill Wyatt, Oruk Shahan, uh, Shabaka Hutchings, and Angel Batawit. I think it's really special that there is a a very clear connection, I think, between writing letters and writing song. And I think it's that both letters and songs grant us the space of being totally truthful, um, speaking about emotions, um, opening ourselves up, um, and sharing personal truth. What I mean to say is I think there is things that we can't say but we can sing and I think there's things we don't write in essays uh, that we do in letters and I think that is the space that Dear is interested in. So I'm back home because I realized as I was recording uh, my last voice note that my battery had died so I was uh, talking into nothingness and it was of course uh, my best voice note up to now. Um, but I just uh, I wanted to say a few words maybe about the dear future, um, about some plans that we have, um, and when you can expect a letter from us again, uh, which will be in May, as we're taking a little bit of a break after the collaboration with Costco, um, which comes to a close at the end of February through the letter of Angel Bat David, which we're looking very much forward to. Um, then we'll take a few months off to look back at what we've been doing, um, to read all the letters again, and to make plans for the upcoming two series, which we'll be w making with uh, two new partners. Um, and within one of those series, we'll actually be working together uh, with a partner for each uh, letter. So that's, that's very exciting, uh, because we cannot really reveal any names yet. I'll just uh, share with you that we'll be working uh, within the realm of um, grief, a mourning, um, ritual, and care. And the first letter will be uh, published in May, and then seven more after that. So we're we're very excited for that. Thank you, dear. Hi, everyone. This is Ying. The next song is by jazz musician Angel Betawit, whose letter we are waiting to be sent to us by Dear. The song is called Impefo from her album Oracle, recorded in 2019. I had the pleasure to see and experience her sonic healing practice last year at Le Guess Who, and was blown away by the energy she and her band were able to guide and release. I'm pulling this introduction from the Guess Who, by the way, announcing the video for Impefo. Um, Oracle is a record where the vibrant, spiritual, free jazz of black life, as it stands today, is documented. Angel's sound grows at the intersection of improvisation and composition, spirituality and location, history and timelessness. Describing herself as a clarinetist, composer and spiritual jazz soothsayer, Angel Bed Dawit's recordings tend to be hymnal, multi-tracked on clarinet, piano, percussion and vocals. With her music, she captures the unbridled sound of obstacles overcome, history revered and a future imagined. 
Angel provides a new radical bench a new radical benchmark for contemporary jazz music and shows how music can be a medium for self-improvement, curiosity and community. Have a listen. And it's called Class on Speech, Rhythm, Sound, and Music. So in this part, he 
is exploring the musicality of poetry and poetry's relationship to jazz and improv, music and dance. And I learned of this, um, I was introduced to this lecture by one of my favorite um, podcasts, radio shows called Something Like with Bitsy Knox. And I felt it was really relevant for us here. Specifically because um, he talks about the heart as the body's uh, rhythm keeper and really the keeper of our subjective experiences of time and time being dependent on the conditions we are living. Um, so I think resonating for us right now to, to consider this as we uh, live out in this kind of dilated present. Um, and so after this, we're going to listen to um, Being the Muck Signal by artists and musician Gio Wyeth, one of the writers from Deer. And this track is from um, his recent album that was released on Juneteenth, 2020, called ATMFM, is a record of music and poetry. And um, I think that this is also a really nice example of how um, the, you know, certain um, works that we focus on can be part of um, mutual aid in some way. So in this instance, um, Gio uh, gave most of the, well, a portion of the, the proceeds from Bandcamp to NAACP, their legal defense fund in the U.S. And, and then for a period of time, 100% of the, the purchases of the, the album uh, went to Glitz, Inc., um, to help housing for black trans people in New York City. So uh, it adds another dimension when we think about, um, well, the, the poetry of artists right now that are, um, well, making work in, in this time of such upheaval and crisis and how, how our work is mobilized um, to that um, supportive effect. And I think um, being the muck signal is uh, just a really lovely example um, of what we're getting at in this lineage as well of, of poetry and, and, um, and jazz. So uh, it's, it's quite a, a long one, but I, I think really worthwhile to listen to the whole track and... and follow along um, in this like poetic and quite musical landscape. So here we go. Okay, so first the question of poetry. What is poetry? What is it? You know, what is it? We know that it has to do with what? Human beings? We can say that. But let me try to, to, to go from my own kind of sense of high art to it. First, in the sense, my own priorities, rhythm, fundamental. You know, fundamental because it is fundamental to your life. You cannot live without rhythm. Does everybody agree to that? 
people that don't agree to that are dead. So <laughs> we won't even talk about that. We know that they're stretched out because they don't have any rhythm. Why do we know that? Because the rhythm keeper has stopped. Because the rhythm keeper is what? The heart. That's the human relationship to rhythm. Boom, 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 boom. When that drum stops in there, that boom, 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 then you have ceased to be. So, you, and actually when it stops, what happens? You actually turn to what? Dust, you disappear, you split. You know, you make a bad smell, and then you go away, <laughs> you know. But this is fundamental when it comes to the heart. That's why even, you know, um, the funkiest, I mean, um, a lot of times we have writing classes, I always tell my students, the songs that you like best, the music that you like, take it and listen to it. Listen to the lyrics, and then analyze the lyrics. And then we find out, we bring these songs into class, and people like songs, and the song says, you know, love, 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 oh, 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 love, 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 oh, 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 ha, ha, ooh, 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 love, love, oh, 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 mm. Well, it's not actually the lyrics there that are important at all, but the rhythm. And what the lyrics are is what? Just an extension of the rhythm itself. So that once you start analyzing the lyrics of songs, then you become much more discriminating in terms of who you think is great. And who is not? That's what we were talking about last night about the difference between Stevie Wonder, who, in my own estimation, is the great poet of our time, the great artist of our time, who to me demonstrates how you integrate the form and content. You know, how do you integrate form and content? You know, Stevie Wonder. And Stevie Wonder, who was so conscious, then moved to Michael Jackson, who was a great performer. Magnificent performer, great dancer, but who is not as conscious, you see. And we'll talk about that again. And then you move to Prince, who is less of a performer and even still less conscious. But it is the consciousness that we're dealing with. But first, the first thing, rhythm. Everybody understand what I'm talking about so well with this rhythm heart thing? You should, if you don't, I mean, you should talk. Don't just sit there like you're at Yale or somewhere. I mean, if you really think that you don't understand or you want to say something about it, please, please do. Can you comment on form as extension of content or vice versa, or what you think about that old thing? Well, I want to talk about that for a whole class. Fundamentally, I believe that content is principle. That's my own view. No, my own view is that content is principle. Yeah. You know, that if you don't have the right form, then the content don't even matter. But that content finally is principle. What you say, finally. What is it that you're saying? Is more, is more right. I mean, form should be used to get that to express that content, and the best form is that which expresses your content best. You know, obviously. That's why if you just want to buy some dead old forms that somebody's handing down to you in a book and says, "This is poetry," four, 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 four. You know, seventeen lines, four lines. I mean, you know, you just. It's like a lot of people who play so-called. Uh, 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 concert music, classical music, usually most of them are just playing music lessons. You know, I mean, it's not like where they said, here, Beethoven will improvise. I mean, you would hear an arrow of Beethoven, you know, I mean, really, playing now, you play it, and you're just playing, you know, it's there, it's on the page, here, play this, you know, here it is, you're playing your music lessons, usually, you know, unless you bring something else to it. Yes? When you say rhythm and poetry, doesn't that mean like arrangement of rhythm? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, see, how subtle is your heart? Take it that way. You know, rhythm is whatever. You know, but it obviously is what defines or actually uh, indicates motion, life. Yes, mother. What about changing rhythm? Oh, great. Absolutely. That's marvelous. The whole foundation of, of, of the ancient drummers, African drummers, is, is of course what? Polyrhythm. That's the basis of playing many rhythms at once. Basis and uh, and uh, and even now, I mean, the greatest of the musicians that we listen to now—that's what they use, polyrhythms. They'll lay down one line, boom, 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 boom. They don't have somebody over top of it. I'm still third person. Yes. You already started with rhythm, but what about the regular? Well, I'm saying this. I think this, that there is a regularity based on your life in terms of the description of who. That with that description of who, there comes a specific kind of rhythm, more or less, which you can depart from or not depart from. Does that include natural beat? Sure. With what we're doing right now? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I think, too, that there are variations on that based on what? Life. You know, what do you do? for a living, for instance? Where do you spend your life? Do you sit behind a desk and flat papers, like many of us? See, because that's going to put one kind of uh, burden on that rhythm. Do you work at an assembly line all day? That's going to impose another kind of burden on the rhythm. You understand what I'm saying? But there, the rhythm that you, there is a rhythm that you have, because there's a rhythm you live by. Why are you so slow? Come on. Slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down, we say to each other. We say, and we're actually dealing with each other's relationship to the planet. So, and that's why it, it, it's like gilding the lily, finally, to think that you have to have some set of rhythms, although it, it's obvious we're going to notate it. We'll see. Yeah, we will notate it. Oh, absolutely. We will notate it. I mean, and, and the rhythms that we use now will be notated. You know, uh, but I think that to, um, let's say, uh, formalize it previous to letting all the kind of uh, energy there is, you know, carry out to its, you know, to, to wherever it can is, uh, leads to early death, you know what I mean, in terms of, in terms of what it is that you want to say. But I think that once you, the people who write a lot, you know that a lot of times what you write off is rhythm before you even know what it is you have to say. You see, I mean, before you even know what it is you're talking about, there's something going, and that itself requires some confidence to follow that rhythm. I learned some new skills related to my, my ass. These skills were hard to learn. It was hard for me. I needed help. And I want you to know 
But it was here in this city where I learned how to open that shit up. It took a while, but once I did it, I felt that I had truly lived. We live next to a river, and the name of the river means more. More, 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 more. More man, more manhole repair. More birds watching while we touch. More time spent near. I want to be near more brown leaves and edges. Sand grinds in my creases. More secrets, silver bags, and giant green rocks to pile up like old fry bits. Condoms washed in wigs. And bubbles scattered, eyes banging around at the bank. Jingling coins line pockets while more hipsters listen for the fairy whispering more, more, more. More war on the wire. Taping my ears flat Like torture Waiting for the water hags Draped in newspaper Dead from the future Up comes the river I want to touch all these faces of friends Whip my hair around in front of soft pink embers Cut by metal cranes and fat boats The story of stuff coming is so Heaven's lips, 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 
say I'm on the low boat, I mean I'm low down. That means I'm a low down dirty motherfucker. That means I don't give a fuck. That means I'm down below the earth. That means I already dug it up. That means I'm looking underneath something. That means I'm going out underneath something. That means I'm looking for roots. That means I'm looking through all the roots underneath. Underneath the water. Underneath the water, I want to touch the bottom of the water. And I want to touch the underneath of the top of the water. And I don't know what it, it's going to get me. I don't know what it's going to bring me. I just need to touch it. I, I want to get in the water. I want to put my stick inside the water. And I want to talk about low-lying water. And I want to put my rake inside the water because I know that when I put in my rake and I rake the muck at the bottom of the water, that the bubbles will come up. And the bubbles will release gas into the air. And when the bubbles release gas into the air, everyone will smell it. They will smell the gas that gets released. It's methane. It's methane gas. It's it's not very good for the the general surrounding environment, but but sometimes you have to release things into the air that, you know, kind of ruin a given situation. I don't know. Sometimes you have to release things into the air that stink, that smell bad. You just have to do that. It's like releasing, passing gas into the air, passing into the air. Yes. Gas from the roots. From the roots. Passing gas into, into the, the air from, from the, the roots. roots. So, anyway, I'm on the low boat and I'm just low enough that I can touch the bank. I can touch the bank of the water. I can touch the bank. I can just barely touch it and that's one area of improvement I guess for myself I could be better at touching I mean I'm low down. That means I'm a low down dirty motherfucker. That means I don't give a fuck. That means I'm down below the earth. That means I already dug it up. That means I'm looking underneath something. That means I'm going down underneath something. 
That means I'm looking for boots. That means I'm looking for the boots underneath. Underneath the water. Underneath the water, I want to touch the bottom of the water. And I want to touch the underneath of the top of the water. And I don't know what it's going to get me. I don't know what it's going to bring me. I just need to touch it. I want to get in the water. I want to put my stick inside the water. And I want to talk about low-lying water. Like Amiri Baraka spoke about rhythm being informed by the work that we do, Ying and I couldn't help but think about work songs in the context of song value. Because, hey, you can't talk about value if you don't talk about labor, right? So there's this incredible oral history project that I want to introduce here that concerns black music preservation uh, in the U.S. South. And it was introduced to me by my dear friend, Jim Draper. And it's important, uh, not only because we just started Black History Month in the U.S., and we need these archives to remember, but because the connection between slave labor of the past and the present remains. It's just a matter of framing uh, that's been changed, as now majority of slave labor happens in prisons. So the collection of work and folk songs that I'm referring to are part of the State Library and Archives of Florida and sung by Black American author, anthropologist, and filmmaker Zora Neale Hurston, who is most known for her portrayal of racial struggles in the south of the U.S. in the early 20th century, along with her scholarship of of hoodoo. Um... Long before she wrote Their Eyes Were Watching God, um, which has a complex reception history, um, Hurston traveled throughout the U.S. South to collect folk songs and tales, and she grew up in Eatonville, Florida, which was the first all-black town incorporated in the U.S. So in 1939, uh, Hurston was recorded singing 18 songs, mostly work and folk songs that she learned during her anthropological research and mostly work songs for the construction of the railroad uh, into Florida. The railroads that were built down into the south in the 19th century, down into Florida, were a massive invasive process of slave labor and ecological devastation. But, I mean, so much to say on this here, but um, this is the reality and context, and and this is what we learn from uh, with songs. The songs that Hurston collected were sung in accompaniment of the physical movement and motion of hammering or spiking a steel lining bar into place. So the lyrics here had a a purpose. The rhythm had a function. So let's listen to the full recording for Shove It Over, sung by Zora Neale Hurston. This song is called Shove It Over. And it's a line and rhythm, pretty generally distributed all over Florida. It was sung to me by Charlie Jones on a railroad construction camp near Lakeland, Florida. 
Uh, that, I gathered that in 
Well, except it, it's not in a particular time, except just the, the feeling of the, of the singing liner. Whatever song he starts is a fast rhythm, they work fast. And if it's a slow one, well, they work, you know, a little slower, but they get just as much work done, it seems, somehow or another. If you want to know more about the relationship between song and labor, please also check out the program at Sonspeek right now called Kracht Maal Afstand over Arbeid and the Landschappen van het Geluid or Force Time Distance on Labor and its Sonic Ecology. I found the next song by Jameo Brown Transcendence on one of their playlists released as part of the mixtape It's a Question of Power, isn't it? Put together by artist Emkal Eyungappa and curator Amal Alhaq. The playlist was made by artist, writer and DJ Liné Denise called The Rhythm of Labor. You can find it on Sonspeak's website or on Spotify. This is Stone Mason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
One of the channels of our program features concerts by musicians who we find embrace the poetic and political in their work. So far, we've presented two live concerts by Shoshani and Marikeet in October, whose voices can also be heard in our first radio episode. So while we work on the post-production of these videos, we also prepare for the premiere of a concert by Mira Thompson, which will take place on February 11th on Costco's YouTube channel. We've had to postpone the concert due to the pandemic measures, but with care and attention, we, we found a way to still record the concert with Mira, and we're really happy to be able to share it with you soon. And likewise, um, we've made extra effort to include lyric captioning in the videos, one, for accessibility purposes, and two, you know, to emphasize our focus on the lyrics, uh, to bring that to the front. So um, with each musician, we've also selected a sort of sing-along song in which we invited um, Dutch Sign Language interpreter Natalie Tweeboom um, to interpret their song as a kind of duet. So we'll be sharing these soon at the end of February. And for now, here is a conversation that Mira and I had over voice notes, which we've grown accustomed to doing over the months um, as we were planning for her concert as well as getting to know each other. So Mira, it's been quite a ride since, um, you know, our original date for the show, the 5th of November, and then postponements, postponements, and it's just the situation in the Netherlands, it's just increasingly worse, I mean, in, in terms of the measures and how that affects our lives. So um, now we have a date, and I was wondering, yeah, could you reflect on this experience, how it's been for you? Yeah, so singing or making music during a pandemic obviously looks very very different being an artist looks very different um i mean the joy of performance for me is so much connected to the audience and the response from the audience um and that works very differently now which also i mean this is not only a negative um i also see it as something to find new ways to connect to people and in that way I also I find it um, I feel like there's some sort of different worth to performing right now because people need it so much they need some sort of input musically or whatever form of art we're talking about but I'm now referring to music um, and I feel like there's so wanted that for me there's a different urge to it. Um, it's a more intuitive urge almost than uh, under so-called normal circumstances. Yeah, so that's I think the most important difference. Apart from that, of course, we have all the measures to take into account. And for me personally, a lot of anxiety and fear surrounding the illness that's 
that's going around. Um, so that definitely influences my artistic freedom in the sense that I'm kind of blocked. I've been blocked for so long. Definitely the whole first lockdown and not because I was inside, but because I was so, well, so, so, so scared. Um, and it's different now. I'm still very scared, but it has some sort of, I can canalize it in a different way than in the beginning. I see that around me as well, that people act differently now than in the beginning, which of course makes sense. And I also, I also teach um, music, I teach singing, I give voice lessons and because everything is online now, such a different experience, you know, I can really be in someone's house because normally it's in my house private lessons um, and because I'm in someone else's house people feel more comfortable and more free to do what they need to do or what they want to do um, and that's a different experience too I feel like that taught me so far that it really matters where you are um, when you sing I mean that's really obvious, but your own home, if you have one, uh, can be a really a place to really express yourself in a different way than, uh, well, the formal setting of a of a le lesson place, my house <laughs> being my house in this case. We saw within the the music of Shoshani and Marikit. Of course, there's the poetry and, and lyricism going on there. Um, but uh, the, the political messaging is much more clear and explicit. Whereas um, in your songwriting practice, it, it's much more associative and abstract. And, well, it has a kind of poetics that is... Um, it's doing something else, and it has to do with other kinds of embodied experience. So um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about that. Yeah, the political. It's interesting because this question has been following me around as well. Um, because on the one hand, I feel a responsibility because I have this voice that I can put out into the world. Um, and I get a stage sometimes. Um, on the other hand, I, of course, the fact that I'm a wheelchair user that enters a stage is already a political statement in itself. <clears throat> so I do fear responsibility, but on the other hand, I think my strength is more in in music at least, not on other in other aspects of life. In music it is, I think, the sort of a personal connection to other people. Mm, that's also how I write. I think it's more believable a lot of the times for, I mean, for myself. I love 
artists like Shishani and Marikit for the reason they're they're so political and so outspokenly political and direct. Um, and I envy that as well in a way. I wish I could do that. I've tried and I, I think it's maybe it's just a constant question and it's evolving. I feel like at some point I will be able to do that in a way that feels more me. So good question and also makes me think again. What I also wanted to add is that for me, the not saying it part is sometimes more important than literally verbalizing it or put it in a more abstract way. It fits me more for some reason. Mm, and not in my when I speak to people. I mean really in songwriting and how I think when I, so I write a song. Mm. It's more associative, I suppose, more than very direct in that sense. I hope this makes any sense to you. I'm trying to explain it in a way that, that speaks to others and that is understandable. I don't know, maybe you can frame this as some sort of privilege, and maybe it is, that I have a choice of not using the stage in this direct way. Um, yeah, I don't know if it is, it maybe is. Yeah, this I get, um, I think it's, I, I mean, I get the privilege aspect um, very much. And I think it's also about finding where you fit within the composition. Um, you know, that not everyone is able to do the same kinds of things. Um, not even just in terms of um, the, the realm and regime of disability and debility, but just like we all have different skill sets and personalities. Um, so there's various roles that we can play in, in the picture of how we're contributing to, well, yeah, life worth living. Um, and yeah, so, you know, it's hard to, if, um, you know, that some, some people who are living, uh, at the margins are not really afforded the um, possibility to be abstract and poetic um, because maybe they're seen as maybe having to make political work. Um, I mean, I also imagine you've been to plenty uh, of demos and situations that were just like inaccessible. You know, that's the thing of it all. It's like, uh, where, where do we find ourselves in the composition of it all, within the, the power relations that are, you know, quite clear often, and especially as it relates to class, but uh, in other cases are quite nebulous and slippery. Totally. Um, the inaccessibility part, it's almost, sometimes I say, being disabled is a full-time job. It really is. 
And when you are putting yourself out there as an artist, you really come across so much inaccessibility in the entertainment. I hate to call it that, but I mean concert halls and cafes, theaters. Um, it's not a given that they are accessible. In fact, most of the time they're not. And that already eats so much of me and my energy that I, I just want to sing a song that is speaking to me instead of being angry. I don't know. It's, I hope you understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying being political is being angry. And I'm also not saying uh, you cannot make beautiful music while being angry. Just for me, it doesn't really work like that. Um, and I guess most of my beliefs and my activism come from a place of anger. I work like that. I can, I'm on fire when I am angry, which is good. But in my music, it's not always good. Yes. So um, let's talk a little bit about your music in particular. Could you share a little bit more about your songwriting process? Also considering um, your background in literature and your influence um, by other singer-songwriters and their poetic word. Now that's a nice question. Mm, yeah, it's, it's definitely the language part or the, the lyric, the lyrics, they come first, almost always. I have an idea or I read something or I hear someone say something and then I kind of evolve that idea um, and it's very, well as I told you before, it's very associative. I literally make these, um, how do you call them in English? The When you put a word in the middle of a paper and then you write all the associations around them, around that word. That's how I start most of the time. And then I leave it for a while and then I come back to it and then my ideas, be it conscious or unconsciously, have evolved from those words that I put down on the paper. And then a melody comes. Sometimes I do start with a melody. Um, a melody, I almost never start from chords. It's the hardest for me. Um, as a singer, you don't really sing chords for pleasure you maybe do it when you at least i have never done that um i've done it when i was learning music theory and i hated it um i really don't have that beta brain um and i hated that kind of approach and i guess for a lot of people it does work but uh, it for me it really doesn't it also takes the pleasure out of writing for me. So I definitely start with the lyrics, either the lyrics or the melody, but most of the time the lyrics. Um, sometimes I even draw or I write a story and then I pick from the story. Mm. Or I read a, a sentence or I hear a sentence that speaks to me and I do it from there instead of the one word. Yeah. 
in the one song that's on my EP, uh, Tiny Shoes, which is uh, made with sounds of my wheelchair. That was a whole different story because that was really coming from the idea that I always live with these sounds and that I kind of, it's almost part of my moving. Well, it is literally, but it also is in a more abstract way. It is, it has become part of my walking or rolling. Um, and my chair makes a lot of different sounds and I kind of enjoy these sounds, but then other people sometimes don't or they surprise people. And uh, I wanted to do something with that because I thought, well, actually my chair is an instrument. That is so cool. I always have, well, apart from my voice, I have another instrument with me and that's the chair. I think that's so cool. Yeah, coming back actually to that question about the, about feeling responsible or the answer I gave you. So it's also a really strange idea that I feel like people have that idea that because I am a person who uses a wheelchair that I should say certain things or I should also be an activist, which I consider myself an activist, but it almost feels like I have to be. I also don't feel like I have a choice on the other hand, but I also feel like it's expected from me. Um, which that's kind of a strange balance. I don't really know how to um, balance that sometimes. And also the fact that I sometimes just want to be or I want to sing and don't really think about this identity, even though that's not possible. I also feel like it's not possible because people expect this from me. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, that was just a thought I had just now. Yeah, I just wanted to come back to my influence of singer-songwriters and their poetic words. I guess you know by now that my cat is named Joni, not for nothing. She's called Joni because of Joni Mitchell. And uh, yeah, I've been a complete Mitchell fanatic since can't even remember when. Um, and I'm sure that has influenced, well, especially my lyrical ideas. Um, yeah, I think she's my main inspiration really, and has always been, but of course there are a lot of people, mm, I have to think about it a bit more. <laughs> thing that I also wanted to add is that a lot of my inspiration doesn't come from or doesn't come directly from other musicians of course it does because what you hear is always somewhere in your consciousness um, and I also realized that when I've just listened to a lot of classical music I make more classical choices so to speak but also it comes from things I see or read or people. That's more the conscious part of it. 
keep an eye out for Mira's concert, which will be streamed from YouTube next week. Next up is a contribution from Serena Lee, who we invited pretty early in the program to think about a recording relating to song value. We were interested in her take on the theme uh, with her practice stemming from a fascination with polyphony and its radical potential for mapping power, perception and belonging. She plays across modes and disciplines, collaborating and presenting her work internationally. Originally from Toronto, Canada, Serena is currently doing artistic research as a PhD candidate at the Academy of Fine Art in Vienna. Allow me to introduce the recording to you with the help of Serena's writing. The title of this piece is To Hear the Salt in the Fish, stretching through the body as a big ear of your grandfather's to the flavors of my grandfather's kitchen. By Serena Lee with Masimba Huati and Yan Xing Chip. What musical practices, traditions, institutions do we belong to? Do we choose them? Do they choose us? To whom are we connected through practice, through the tools of playing, listening, reading? How do we negotiate that which is chosen, that which is inherited, that which is lost? In conversing with Masimba Huati, an artist from Zimbabwe, our starting point was to question was to question tonality, coloniality, being in tune. We spoke at length through these intersections from our experiences with making sound and listening, theories and practices of performing music and identity through solo and collective dynamics. I told Masimba that I would connect our conversation with recordings I made of my grandpa, Gong Gong, restringing and turning his Yungkang, Chinese dulcimer. A relatively young traditional instrument said to be either imported along the Silk Road or through ocean trade. We lived in the same house for several years before he passed away. He would play in the kitchen as a private practice whenever he felt like it. I would hear him playing from upstairs. My gong gong would compose poetry and write out calligraphy as an adjacent practice, often writing about his thoughts on playing music. He had taught himself to play four instruments, yi, wu, violin, banjo, yuanqing. He didn't read music. He played Cantonese folk songs as he remembered them. And on the rare occasion when I went to see him play with others in an assemble, the loose sprawl of their togetherness caught me off guard. I hadn't heard people listen like this before. Masimma says something similar about a hundred-year-old recording of a pygmy group from West Africa playing five parts in parallel, that the polyphonous sound is so different that it stops you in your tracks and makes you think about what harmony is. I started Western conservatory piano training in my childhood and have been playing for the last 25 years. My late teacher, Maxime, played jazz in big bands and taught me the basics of improvising when I was a teenager but I am still most comfortable playing the piano with a textual score. In our conversation, Masimba and I call this a strange reliance as we discuss the complicated relationship of post-coloniality and literacy. 
I have not performed publicly for years. For me, playing the piano is a process of thinking through the body, one of many. kitchen, tuning the yongkang. The tools are in the drawer. I hand him the tools. The instrument faces the window. Sun shines onto the wall, the wall covered in calligraphy, writing on scrap paper, writing on flattened boxes, writing on old calendars, no space between the pages. Poetry on the wall in red and black, four words to a page, perfect grid, writing, Moving, writing as moving. Water boils for tea. Salted fish soaks in a bowl. Yeah. Is, is my washing machine inter, inter, interrupting us? Okay. So I play by ear, and he was asking me questions like, uh, we need to have something written down. And I said, but I, you know, I don't know how to relate to that. So we just started discussing this uh, relationship um, between people who have like training, former musical training, and how they rely on the scripts. I don't want to look at it as a binary or maybe one is better than the other, but I just find it fascinating that uh, sometimes these two systems they lead to the same point, but I, uh, I rely a lot on memory. You know, I, I have to remember, but not only remember uh, with the cerebral capacity, but I have to remember how it felt. <laughs> How can you tell when someone is not really listening? <laughs> so that's uh, that's funny because um, an image just came to me, you know, when I was playing with a certain band at one point, way back. And then you had this overzealous drama, you know. He was just drumming and he was looking down. And he was drumming. He was in his own world. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't mind, you know, if somebody is not on the beat, but uh, his body language to me, like, seemed, he was decent, he was not. So I think for me, body language is more important than what you are producing. Um, I, I have to be able to, to feel from the body language that this person is present. It's a good, that's a very good question. It, it depends on what we are doing. I personally prefer situations in which the leadership role is um, mobile. 
like it can anybody could take it at a certain point um, mm-hmm. i think it frees up everybody to be themselves but uh, at, at, at a certain point i think depending on what you're doing you really need somebody to carry a vision for most people this could be problematic um as a most people who improvise uh, that i work with this could be problematic having this dominant person but it depends how you look look at it and again i think it's uh it has to do with the relationship that's so interesting serena i and and it it brings a question in my mind and the question to you is how do you how do you maybe navigate or negotiate that fraught relationship with this all this knowledge uh, of how this um i'm going to i'm going to call it colonial i know that it may be problematic but all this colonial uh baggage that is hidden in tonality and in the musical pedagogy how do you negotiate or navigate yourself so i i have the same thing too because there are certain things that i i i really enjoy but then i know that okay this there is a there is a problem with this so how do you how do you relate to that yeah that's uh that's such a central thing isn't it and i think it's maybe like you're saying it's something that you constantly have to negotiate and it's something that you constantly question in a way that's um through the practice right it's not a it's not a questioning that's um that you do in isolation like you have to do it through practice um and i think for me it is re- very much that it's always centered on love for the sound love for the practice water boils for tea salted fish soaks in a bowl gonggong in the kitchen tuning the yongkam sun shines on the instrument he stretches the wire I hold one side. He cuts the wire. His hands are old, moving without hurry. Wires stretching across the empty wooden belly. Sun shines on the wall. Writing moves across the wall. So, one of the fascinating things that you mentioned is how you have been playing something for the same thing for over 10 years do you feel um that this thing as you own it and as you discipline yourself in relationship to this thing it becomes yours the word mastery and the word own it's of course opens up an entirely different definition of those things mm-hmm. to think of it in this context because yeah. i remember actually doing this exercise like a warm up exercise and the way that my teacher phrased it was that you do this and then you can command the instrument 
And of course, like all of these words, you know, we use these words, but then when you actually do it, those are the words for it, but it feels different, you know? It doesn't feel like this fraught power relationship. So yeah. it, it becomes it becomes a little messy when when I'm thinking of it in a post-colonial sense, because there is this whole group of people who have to do the figuring out. Uh, yeah. But but the question is, will they be reciprocated? Is is somebody also going to try and figure themselves in relationship to them? But yeah. then at the same time, practically. I I think that um, in a performance you you have to be able to figure out how the power on the subject works. One of my favorite uh, theorists is Akili Mbembe uh, from Cameroon, and uh, he talks about the post-colonial situation as a dance, and he mm. says he he says that maybe it's not a binary economy. And he, wants, he, he likes to look at it as a dance whereby the subject is dancing around the power. And mm -hmm. when the subject, whenever the subject can, the subject modifies the power. Each note is many wires, many wires sounding together from many wires. One note, stretching across the empty wooden belly. Listen to this side. Listen to that side. When one side sounds right, the other side follows. Right now, both sides are off. Oh, I am lucky. <sighs> It's not that those questions disappear, but it's not so important what the content is. And I think this is what I find really interesting, right? It's like the how of it is what you're committing to. And it's not that the, I mean, again, it's not a, an opposition. It's not that the music doesn't matter, right? It's not that what's on the score doesn't matter. I'm not trying to, like the goal isn't to own it, right? The goal isn't necessarily to master that, but it's to to commit to this how. It's, it's interesting how when you say that you lose parts of yourself when you are playing, I'm thinking like, wow, this is amazing because uh, usually in our in post-colonial language, what we are trying to reclaim or get is the self. You know, people talk about the disintegration of the self. People talk about how the self has been uh, corrupted by mm -hmm. colonial cultural influence or cultural pressure, you know, which I understand very much. But I, I, I'm becoming fascinated with this idea of, you know, when you get to a place whereby as you let go, you know, as you let go, you gain something else.
And to me, when we talk about being in tune, I'm thinking that, you know, there is a, um, a place where you can be in between things and be in tune. And this tune may not be the standard provided tune, but it's something that you have inside. It's like when you have your own weather in you, you know, mm -hmm. and you are not relying on this weather, but you have something else in you. So being in tune sometimes is, is being able to relate to that. To play, he sits, threads a line from the navel of the Yonkam to the center of his belly, points straight up to the sky to channel the sound. This is how you play a song. How does water flow? Play the song like this. Think of the spring wind, of what it moves. Play the song like this. I teach you this because you're family. We're coming to a close of this season of Common Air, leaving you with a song from Shabaka Hutchings, from whom you may have received a letter thanks to Dear last December. Shabaka Hutchings is a London-based jazz saxophonist, part of different groups like Shabaka and the Ancestors, Sons of Kemet, and The Comet is Coming. In announcing his letter, Martha and Sophie wrote, in his letter to a young musician, Shabaka Hutchings guides us to his path of finding joy in music, urges us to discover the depth of our childhood songs and to allow ourselves to be moved in order to move others. The song you're going to hear is from Sons of Kemet, from the album Your Queen is a Reptile, recorded in 2018. All the songs on this album are named after important black women in history, like Harriet Tubman uh, and Angela Davis, but also Shabaka's grandmother, Ada Eastman, and freedom fighters from Ghana and Jamaica. This song is called My Queen is Albertina Sisulu, who was a South African activist resisting the apartheid regime. She was in and out of prison for her political activities, but honored for her work in later life. Thank you for joining us this episode. Take good care, wear a mask, wash your hands, and catch you next time.
Mm-hmm.